The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's rise and worship the triune God. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desires of those who are in awe of him. He will hear their cry and save them. Amen. Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 9, In this manner, therefore pray, O Lord, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Let's pray. Our great God, you have called us to pray to you as our Father in heaven. You are holy, 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 a God apart from sin, who hates sin. You are our Holy Father. We confess that as individuals, as a church, as a nation, we are in desperate need of your fatherhood and your holiness. This is made clear once again as New York State, a state in our nation, has legalized and then celebrates the right of mothers to abort their babies up to the point of death. This is a great sin that grows from a rejection of your holiness and your fatherhood. We plead for your justice and your mercy, and we thank you, our Holy Father, that you give us justice and mercy through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. It is now in his name and through his work that we worship you, our Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit, and amen. When I say laziness, what comes to mind? Perhaps it's a recliner, sweatpants, daytime TV, Cheeto dust. Right? This kind of laziness is marked by a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands around your video game controller, slaying thousands of zombies. Right? Proverbs 6, verse 6 exhorts, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. If you are a sluggard, then repent, get up, and get busy. But we need to realize that laziness is not limited to a sluggard on the couch. You can be super busy and still be lazy. Laziness often hides itself in busy work. Let me give you a couple examples. You're sitting at your desk, and instead of getting cracking on that big project, you feel it's high time to organize your desk, and then maybe color coordinate your bookshelves. Or instead of actually writing that paper, you, you look at a few more articles, all while spending the hours in the coffee shop. Or perhaps you spend hours researching Pinterest for that perfect family dinner while your kids are starving for your attention. In all of these things, you're substituting busy work for the hard work, the important work, the main work that's before you. Listen to Jesus rebuke spiritual busyness. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe on mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. You can just imagine how much time a Pharisee would have taken to exactly measure out the tithe of his cumin. Busy, busy, busy. But Jesus says it's all for nothing. It's all worthless if that Pharisee then snaps and barks at his kid for bumping the table. Laziness is a dad refusing to put down his phone or even a parenting book in order to deal out justice to his frustrated kids. Laziness is the woman who does not go to seek forgiveness for her gossip last week. Laziness is your busy schedule that somehow doesn't allow you to read your Bible. You can have the hands of an ant but have a lazy heart of a slug. 
And the sin of laziness ends in poverty and destruction. And I'm talking this is both material and spiritual. This is Solomon's warning. So shall your poverty come upon you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. So the exhortation is don't be lazy and be wise. And wisdom looks to Christ in order to confess our sins of laziness of all kinds. Jesus instructs us to pray and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Our Father, you tell us that you will apply the standard of forgiveness to us that we apply to others. We confess that we are quick to point out the sins of others, but slow to forgive, and often even slower to confess our own sin, like our sin of laziness. We readily see laziness in others when they aren't doing their work or they're not helping to pitch in, but we are reluctant to acknowledge our own sloth. We confess that laziness is primarily a sin, not with our hands, but from our hearts. Laziness seeks to avoid the main work that you have called us to do. The greatest work is to love our God and to love our people. Laziness is a kind of self-love which shrinks from loving God and loving people. So we avoid the hard work of loving our wife or our husband. We substitute TV as a distraction to train up our children to love and obey Christ. We refuse to work for six days so we don't rest on your Sabbath. This is laziness, and we confess this sin in our lives. We now confess our individual sins to you now and Selah. We ask all of this in the name of your Son and our Savior, and amen. Please rise for the assurance of God's pardon. From Matthew 6, verse 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. The good news in Christ is that while we have all been lazy in our work, Christ has not. He has been perfectly diligent. And if you look to his death and resurrection as the basis of your forgiveness and for your forgiveness of others, then through the gospel, your sins are forgiven through Christ. And thanks be to God. The text this morning is from Exodus 31, verses 1 through 5. These are the words of God. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezaleel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God, and wisdom, and in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to devise cunning works, to work in gold, and in silver, and in brass, and in cutting of stones, to set them, and in carving of timber, to work in all manner of workmanship. Our Father in God, we thank you for your word. I pray that your spirit would be present here this morning. Uh, pushing this word into the corners of our lives. I pray that you would open our, open our hearts up so that we would be receptive and eager to apply, eager to obey. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, and amen. amen. Well, it is uh, a very good thing to be with you. Um, quite a blessing. Uh, I believe the, the last time that I was here, uh, I preached on... Uh, body life, the, the uh, different parts, the different gifts that God has given to every part of the body and how that body is supposed to uh, work together. And it's not simply a question of the, uh, a club where the religious experts or the professionals are up front and then you've got all the, uh, you know, the grist for the mill, the schlubs and the tithers out there. Um, where you've got professionals doing for you and you having things done to you. Rather, body life is a recognition that the body of Christ entails every part and every part has a role to play. There is, there's no such thing as an insignificant Christian. There are no little people. Everyone is engaged. Everyone is involved. But that's, there's, um, 
that is true enough, and it's a glorious truth. It's, uh, it's a wonderful truth, but it gets even bigger than that. That emphasis, body life, the way a body like this functions, the way a congregation like this functions, is largely internal. I want to look externally. What happens when the benediction is given? What happens when we've all gathered together, we've ascended into the heavenly places, we've worshiped God in the heavenly places, and we've renewed covenant with him in the, in the communion meal, and then the blessing is said, and you are sent out into the world. That involves Monday and Tuesday and Thursday. That, that involves, involves the rest of the week. What is your role as a representative of the body of Christ out there? when you're practicing law, or when you're farming, or when you are making coffees at a coffee shop, or what, what, what is that, what is the biblical role of that? What is the place of that? And so this, this morning, I want to address Christ hidden in your calling. Christ hidden in your calling. Everything that you do all week long is an invitation, or not, to non-believers to come to Christ. Everything you do Everything you do, not just the religious stuff, not just the Bible reading, not just the prayer that you say at the restaurant that somebody might see. Everything you do is a representation of Christ to a watching world. So, I want to begin with a statement of the problem. Many glorious truths were recovered in the Reformation. They were, it was, the Reformation was a liturgical Reformation. It was a doctrinal Reformation. It was a Reformation in worship. It was a musical Reformation. There were many things going on. But among these many things was the, the doctrine of vocation. The doctrine of vocation was largely recovered in the Reformation. And unfortunately, this is part of our Protestant heritage that we have shamefully neglected and we have almost lost in our day. It, is, it has been shamefully neglected and even in evangelical and Protestant circles, it is almost lost, almost gone. One of the principal indications that we've lost this doctrine is that we speak so easily and readily of full-time Christian work. What are you going to do when you graduate? Well, I'm thinking about going into full-time Christian work. Oh, as opposed to all the part-timers like me? <laughs> what are you talking about? It's, it's like we sometimes uh, forget that the way we use terminology reveals, a, uh, reveals either one-upsmanship or uh, what kind of church do you go to? Well, spirit-filled church as opposed to the other kind, I suppose. <laughs> right? um, I'm, I'm going into full-time Christian work as though there were anything else for a Christian to do. Every Christian, every Christian is involved in full-time Christian work. It looks different. God has assigned to different people different things to do. He's assigned to different Christians different callings, different vocations. But all of it is to be uh, offered up to God. All of it is full-time Christian work. The reestablishment of a two-holiness layer of occupation in Christendom has been a terrible loss. And the two-holiness layer is actually, it's, it's, it'd be inaccurate to call it a two-holiness layer. It's more like a holiness layer and an unholiness layer. So in the medieval church, the, the, the uh, clergymen, the people who were ordained, did all the stuff down front. And then everybody gathered in the cathedral, which was like a long, narrow tunnel, and they looked down they looked down the tunnel to see what was happening at the holy end. And in some places, uh, there was a thing called the rood screen, uh, R-O-O-D, the rood screen. It was a screen that was set up so you couldn't see what was going on uh, in the holy spot, right? So you had all the people who had ordinary, mundane, dirty occupations, and then you had the holy people down front. That was the holiness unholiness thing. And, and we're starting to drift back into that. And the language of, I'm, if you want to be sold out for Jesus, if you want to be a Navy SEAL for Jesus, then you're, going to, then you're going to have to be a missionary, church planter, some kind of full-time Christian work, as opposed to, I, just try this. You're talking to your aunt. What are you going to do after you graduate? Well, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, going to dental school. Oh, and, and why is that? Well, I, I really, my whole life, I've wanted to go into full-time Christian work. And she says, teeth? Teeth, teeth is, now she might say, oh, on a mission ship. No, no. 
No, in Des Moines. I'd like to open up a practice in Des Moines. In Des Moines. That's, she would say, what are you talking about? That's not full-time Christian work. Well, if you think biblically, that is absolutely what it is. All right, so the holiness of any given calling is affected by an unholy pursuit of it. If a man goes to the mission field in disobedience, he is being unholy there. If a man goes to a holy calling in disobedience, and many people have done that, right? many people have done that. Um, my son-in-law grew up in the Wheaton area, went to Wheaton High School, and that, that's sort of like the epicenter of evangelicalism. And uh, Luke tells us that, that one of the drastic, one of the indicators that somebody's uh, spiritual life was beginning to wobble, was they were, about to, they were about to lose it, was that they said, well, I'm thinking of going to the mission field. A sure sign, blinking lights, a sure sign of bad trouble, bad trouble ahead. Why? Well, this, why, why would people go to the mission field? For the same reason that non-Christians major in psychology. They're trying to fix their own problems, right? If I can, if I can go into this, I've got, I've got all this churn inside. Maybe I, if I do something for Jesus, it'll fix everything. Well, if a person is challenged by a motivational speaker or they're trying to fix their own problems and they go out to the mission field in disobedience, which a number of people have done, uh, they're being unholy in that holy calling. And if a man becomes a rancher in obedience, then he is pursuing a holy calling. Right? It's a holy calling because he's going where he's going in obedience. If you go wherever you go in disobedience, the, the holiness of the calling or the sanctity of the calling doesn't fix it. The calling does not trump the call. The calling, in other words, the objective nature of the calling does not trump the call, which is the, the subjective reality that, that the person involved needs to um, be aware of, needs to be following. So in this text, Exodus 31, it says this, the word of the Lord comes to Moses, verse 1. The word of the Lord comes to Moses. A particular man was called by name out of the tribe of Judah. He's called by name out of the tribe of Judah. His name was Bezalel, verse 2, and the Lord filled him with the spirit of God, verse 3. And you might be wondering in your modern conceits how anybody named Bezalel could be filled with the spirit. But... <laughs> Listen, all you parents who are so fond of Bible names. I'm looking forward to the first time I get to baptize a Bezalel. Well, his name was Bezalel, and the Lord filled him with the Spirit of God, verse 3. And this is the first instance of anyone being described as filled with the Spirit in the Bible. This is the first time in the Bible that anybody is described as being filled with the Spirit of God. And what were the indications of the Spirit's filling? What did the Spirit do for this man? Well, the indications were wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and craftsmanship. Now, you might be thinking Bible-y thoughts in the first part. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge. Yeah, I could, I could exhibit those in Sunday school and in the Q&A section. Or I, I could exhibit those at church. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge. Craftsmanship? Craftsmanship? Verse 3, which gave him an ability to do cunning work. As a goldsmith, a silversmith, a worker in brass, verse 4, a jeweler, or possibly a mason. Uh, he, he was someone who set stones. So if they were big stones, he's a mason. If he's, they were little tiny stones, he's a jeweler. All right, a woodworker, along with any other similar work. Bezalel had wisdom in his hands. And he had wisdom in his hands because he had the Spirit of God in his heart. He had wisdom in his hands because he had the Spirit of God in his heart. So when the Spirit descends to fill a man for the first time in the Bible, it is surprisingly not to come down upon a theologian reading a big fat scroll. He does do that. God is kind even to theologians. He does do that since scholarship is a lawful calling. But that comes later, right? That comes later. The most important thing here is that Bezalel is called, is called by God. The Latin verb that means to call is vocare, from which we get our word vocation, calling. A vocation is a calling. And you can't have a calling unless you have a caller. Someone has to call. Just like when we speak of the moral law in society, you can't have moral law without a lawgiver. You can't have law without a legislator. 
You can't have a calling without a caller. And you, d you aren't your own caller, right? You don't say, you don't, you're, if you're sitting in the living room and you, you shout out aloud to yourself, I think it's time for me to go get some ice cream. And you go into the kitchen and your mom says, what are you doing here? I was called. <laughs> your mom, if she's shrewd, would say, that doesn't count. You, call, you don't get to call yourself, right? Someone, you have to be called from outside. Now, this is not to disparage a call to the, mis the mission field or to the ministry or to church planting or to what is traditionally called full-time Christian work. Of course, we're not going to disparage that because those are lawful callings. But all Christians are called. All Christians are called. And they're called to labor self-consciously and faithfully in their calling, whether it is law, real estate, carpentry, medicine, bricklaying, shopkeeping, changing diapers, writing novels or songs, digging latrines, or planting trees. If you're doing any of those things, or any other lawful calling that there is, you need to be called to it. You need to, you need to be obeying when you go to work. When you go to work, you want to be obeying the Spirit of God. All of God is in all of it. Christians who think like Christians should function in terms of calling and not in terms of, quote-unquote, a job. Not in terms of, quote-unquote, a job. Or even worse, just a job. What are, you doing most of the what are you doing most of the time? Well, it's just a job. You don't want to be out there spending your life on things that are just anything. Now, you might say, well, what about sleeping? You know, that's, what were you doing? I was just sleeping. Yeah, I'm 65, which means I've spent over 20 years sound asleep. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> 20, I mean, that's 20 years. And uh, so I remember my, my father one time saying, he, my father was preaching for us at Christ Church, and he said, whatever you're doing, you're either obeying or you're disobeying. And he said, even when you're sleeping? Yes, even when you're sleeping. You either should be or you shouldn't be. <laughs> right? You either should be sleeping or you shouldn't be sleeping. So when uh, the fact that God wants us uh, to spend that much time conked out is something that he thought of, not that we didn't think of it. He, he thought of that. It's built in. And you look around human society, and it's really strange when you come to think about it. Everybody goes home, turns the lights out, and lies down, and then they're out of it. And you say, well, does, is this how God wants us spending our time? Yes. Yes, it is. It's, it's, built, it, it's built in. But you might say, what about if I, I'm pursuing some job that bores me to tears? I don't like it. Um, I'm just, I feel like I'm frittering away my time making useless things for people to spend money on stupidly. Well, you know, is, that, is that a calling? I, if you feel that way, you shouldn't be pursuing that. You should be thinking, what can I do that is worthwhile? What can I do to serve others? So here's the foundation of all of this. We do not hold to this view of vocation on the basis of a mere assertion. There is a doctrinal foundation for it. We must fix it in our minds that God is in everything and works through everything. God is in everything and works through everything. If God is sovereign in all things, which we affirm, this means that Christ is hidden in the artisan, Christ is hidden in the artisan, and Christ is hidden in the customer. If you're the artisan, you need to be thinking about how Christ is hidden in the customer. And if you're the customer, you need to be thinking about how Christ is hidden in the artisan. Christ is hidden in the one behind the counter, and he is hidden in the one in front of the counter. He is hidden in the dentist, and he is hidden in the patient in the chair. First, God provides us, and, and all of us function in, as though this were true. All of us function with this truth in mind. God provides for us through means, right? We benefit from the work of the farmer, the fertilizer salesman, the trucker. And before I finish this list, when you poured a bowl of Cheerios this morning, right? you poured a bowl of Cheerios, poured the milk on it, and you um, bowed your head and you thanked God for the Cheerios. When you thanked God for the, children, the Cheerios, what 
precisely were you thanking God for? What exactly you, well, you say, well, it's just this bowl in front of me. That's what I'm thanking God for. I get to eat this bowl. Yes, but where did it come? Where did the bowl come from? Where did the milk come from? Where did the Cheerios come from? What, what, how did this arrive here? Americans think in terms of uh, food that falls from the sky or food that just magically, mystically appears. One of, one of our children, I won't say who, when um, very little, very young age, uh, Nancy was driving to, to Pullman and the child, concerned, looked out of the fields and said, do farmers grow their own food? Nancy said, uh, yes. And the child said, don't they know how to cook? <laughs> right. Don't they know how to cook? Doesn't food just appear on the table? No, it doesn't appear on the table. When you, when you, when you thank God for the Cheerios, you're thanking God for the farmer, the fertilizer salesman, the trucker, the grocery store clerk, the dairyman. And when you bow your heads to thank God for the breakfast cereal, you are thanking him for his work in and through all of those people, whether they know him or not. And the repercussions go even further. When, uh, when the farmer is growing uh, the grain, uh, where did all the pieces on the, his equipment come from? The, the, we're talking about miners in South America. We're, you know, it, repercussions, the repercussions for your bowl of Cheerios, your thanksgiving and your gratitude uh, goes out to hundreds of thousands of people. Right, that's what you're thanking God for. And Christ is in all of it. Whether or not those people know him or not, this truth does not depend upon everyone involved being regenerate. We receive from God through the work of others. We acknowledge this whenever we pray for our daily bread, Matthew 6, 11, and we know that God is working through all things, Romans 8, 28. God, um, all things work together for good. God is at work in all of it. And this includes all of our daily kindnesses. When you, when you turn the knobs and hot water comes out in the sink, and when, when all of the, the countless little blessings that happen to you, thousands of them, all the time, you thank God for this, and thank God for this, and thank God for this, and thousands of people are involved with all of it. So that's one thing. You're a debtor. When you thank God for your food, when you thank God for warmth, when you thank God for your house, when you thank God for your clothing, when you thank God for these things, you are doing so as a debtor, and you're thanking God in the name of Jesus Christ for how he used all of these people to do this particular thing for you. So Christ is hidden in all of those callings. Christ is hidden in all of those callings. Second, and this is where it gets astonishing. Well, the first one is astonishing enough, but this is where it gets really astonishing. Christ receives from us. He doesn't just give to us. Christ receives from us as we work in each of our vocations. God greatly receives from us through the work that we do for others. Lord, when did I ever give you hot French fries when you were famished? Don't you remember? It was that time at the drive through window with you wearing that stupid little paper hat. Right? Well, it turns out it wasn't a stupid little paper hat. Right? You were giving French fries to Jesus. And you might say, well, this, that sounds a little disrespectful, you know, giving French fries to Jesus. No, no. Not a, this is a biblical way of thinking. This is the other side of vocation. It's the flip side of it. God keeps track of every cup of cold water, Matthew 10, 42, and he reckons everything we do for others as done to and for him in Matthew 25, 34 through 46. Jesus says, thank you for visiting me in prison that time. And the godly say, when did we visit you in prison? The ungodly say, when did we refuse to visit you in prison. When, when did you, uh, Jesus says, thank you for what you did for me. Thank you for what you did for me. And it turns out that what you did for that toddler and what you did for the little old lady who was uh, disoriented and you stopped and helped her and what you did for that person, the, the person on the plane that you spoke a kind word to, all of those things that you were doing, you were doing to Christ. You were doing, you, Christ was hidden in the person that you were ministering to. So this means that Christ is hidden in our vocation, and he is hidden in our neighbor. Christ is hidden in our vocation, and he's hidden in my neighbor's vocation. 
He's hidden in my neighbor's vocation, and he's hidden uh, as my neighbor ministers to me, and as countless neighbors minister to me, and he is hidden in my vocation as I minister to countless others. We are to discover him there by the eyes of faith. We were created for work, Genesis 2.15, and we are called to work diligently six days out of seven, Exodus 20, 9, 9-11. We're, to, we're called to work diligently six out of seven days and to rest for one. We are to render all our work to Christ and not just to the boss when he is present or when he is watching. Colossians 3.23 says, And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Whatever you do, work as though Jesus were your boss. Work as though Jesus were your supervisor. Work as though the inspection were going to be done by Christ himself. You don't you don't uh, lean on your shovel until you see the overseer coming and then get, get to work. You, you, want to, you don't want to be a man pleaser like that. Christ is in your boss. Christ is in your customer. Christ is in the merchant who sells to you. And Christ is in you. In him, we live and move and have our being. In him, we live and move and have our being. And so... We are to receive all of the work done for us through the rest of the human race as a gift from Jesus himself. All the work that's done for us through the supply chain, all the work that's done for us through the market economy, all that work, the, another way of saying this is that Adam Smith's invisible hand is Jesus. Right? Adam Smith's invisible hand is Christ. Matthew 6, 11. The mother gives milk to the child, but who fills her breasts with milk in the first place? When the farmer first planted the wheat, he did not know that he was making milk for the baby. All right? Unless he was a believer, unless he understood this truth, and he understood that he was making milk for countless babies. He, 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 he knew that he was blessing thousands. This truth does not appear, uh, this, the, the truth of this does not depend upon our awareness of it in the moment. Our joy and thanksgiving is dependent upon our, our, our awareness of it in the moment. Always and for everything, giving thanks in Ephesians 5.20. So, if, uh, let's say you've got a blaspheming merchant or a blaspheming businessman or a blaspheming farmer, someone who shakes his fist at heaven every chance he gets. Um, that doesn't undo the truth of, that Christ is giving to me through the labors of the ungodly. It just simply means that the ungodly merchant, the ungodly businessman, the ungodly farmer, the ungodly rancher, these people are being used by God as instruments and tools as opposed to being used as sons and daughters. But God is sovereign either way. God is using the tools, he's using the instruments, and he's using the sons and daughters. The difference is the sons and daughters are blessed. The sons and daughters are aware of what's going on. They're aware of how God is ministering to them through all these people and how they are being used to minister to these other people, and Christ is in all of it. <coughs> now, all work is full of glory, but it is a glory, <coughs> excuse me, it's a glory apprehended by faith. This faith does not necessarily mean that a Christian carpenter pounds nails differently than an unregenerate carpenter does. Both an unregenerate carpenter and a regenerate carpenter put the pointy end down, right? Both of them pound a nail the same way. But it does mean that he should understand the meaning of what he does, and over time, this should result in differences in craft competence. This should result in differences in craft competence. Not in the first 10 minutes, but over, over time. We, the, uh, we must be done with the rationalization that assumes that if our work is being done before a forgiving God, this provides us with additional excuses and evasions. Rather, this must be a gracious, gra I'll un under underline gracious, this must be a gracious <coughs> spur to excellence. This must be a gracious spur to excellence. Neither should this doctrine be taken as an excuse to become a one-trick pony. Your vocation is varied, and it extends to every aspect of your life. This means that you're not only called to be, say, a software designer, but you are also called to be a son, a student, 
a husband, a brother, a citizen, a churchman, and a putter of model ships into bottles. Everything you do, right, well, every office that you have, every, uh, everything that you are engaged in is supposed to be something that is rendered up to God. Thank you. Every cup of cold water given in the room. <laughs> so, this incidentally, um, th this means that parents should be equipping their children, and that, that is what education is, parents providing a broad education. You should be equipping your child for his or her vocation in this broad sense, not just to be someone who 24-7 thinks about coding or 24-7 thinks about pounding nails or 24-7 doesn't think about anything else. No, we want to have full-orbed lives. We want to be actual regular people. We don't want to be people who are so focused on one thing that we are terrible at everything else we do. What, do you want, what does it profit a man, Jesus says, if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? What does it profit a man to take that same principle and apply it at lower levels? What does it profit a man if he's the, is the, if he's the top uh, salesman in his region and then as a result of that gets divorced the next year? Or as a result of that, his kids wander away from the faith. You want everything in balance. And we also want to say that vocation, an understanding of vocation, is not a talisman against worldly difficulties. This is not hooba dust that you sprinkle over your head and it makes all the difficulties go away. Americans love three steps to automatic success. But that's not what the scriptures promise. Diligence in this vocational way of thinking will generally result in long-term satisfaction with what you do instead of the constant flitting from job to job that is so common in our day. But I don't think that God-given changes are a sign that something's necessarily wrong. Everything boils down to whether it's being done in a spirit of discontent, frustration, exasperation, or whether it's being done because you're listening to God's call. You want to follow God's calling. And don't think that vocation means that you will just float through your workday. The diapers can really stink, the customers can really be unreasonably irate. The promised shipments can really be subject to exasperating delays. Other people can blame you for something that somebody did to you, right? And then in, in the economy, those sorts of things um, have repercussions downstream. All of those things can happen. Rain falls on the just and the unjust, Jesus teaches us in Matthew 5.45. And Christ is in all of it. Christ is in all of it. And when you receive the benediction at the end of this service and you're going out, you're going out as Christians. You're going out to be little Christs. You're going out to be Christians as you deal with people who don't know Christ. And you want to deal with the people who don't know Christ in a way that enables them to see something is up. Something is different here. Something, what, what is going on? We are called, all of us, to live in the will of God. We are called, all of us, to live in the will of God. But remember the difference between his revealed will for every Christian, and after that, what are your abilities, what are your opportunities, and what are your desires? The first is a function of obedience. The second is a function of wisdom. So let me illustrate that for just a moment. Picture a big table, and this table represents the revealed will of God. What's on the table is what God expects from every Christian, what God expects from everyone who's walking with him. It's his revealed will. Uh, Thessalonians says, this is the will of God concerning you, that you avoid sexual immorality. So avoiding sexual immorality is on the table. Getting into sexual immorality is off the table. So when you, you are charged to live in the will of God, you're not... Now, that doesn't mean, many Christians think, that means that they're supposed to pray and pray, 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 pray hard, and then God will give you a message. Um, an angel will throw a brick through your window with a note tied to it. Go to grad school, it will say. Gabriel. <laughs> well, God doesn't, God doesn't guide you that way. God doesn't, you're not prophets. You're not sons of prophets. God's not going to give you a revelatory word. But you're supposed to live in the will of God, even though you don't get messages from heaven. How do you live in the will of God? 
How do you live in the will of God when God is not telling you what to do five minutes from now, what God is, when God is not telling you to do six months from now? How are you supposed to do it? Well, there's two things. One is that table, anything that's on the table is fair game. If it's off the table, it's not fair game. You don't have to pray about becoming a hitman for the mafia. You don't, don't have to pray about becoming a cocaine dealer. You don't have to pray about those things because it's not the will of God. If it's a lawful vocation, it's on the table. If it's a lawful vocation, it's on the table. God has said to every Christian, it's okay to be a dentist. It's okay to be an architect. It's okay to be a software uh, engineer. It's okay. You know, these things are all on the table. And once you get on the table, you're in, and picture it's a big table that you can walk around on. I, I tell people, you need to drill three holes in the table, and you need to stick a dowel in each hole, and you walk around the table, and when those three dowels line up, go. And those three dowels, those three posts are, what are your abilities, what are your opportunities, and what are your desires? What can you do? What are they letting you do? And what do you want to do? And if you've got the point surrendered, you've surrendered the whole thing to God. I want to obey your will. I want to be in your will. And so I want to figure out what you've called me to do. You, want, you, you look around and you say, what can I do? What am I good at? What do I have the option of doing? All right. And what do I want to do? And this applies to everything. Who you propose marriage to, what jobs you apply to. Um, why, why would you apply to schools that you don't want to go to? Right, well, I'd, if they accepted me, I wouldn't go, right? Or I would really, really like to go to these schools and, and I've applied 15 times and they always say no. Well, you want, to, you want to be listening to what God says through your circumstances. So those three things, when those three things line up, it's a function of wisdom. Being on the table is a function of obedience and lining those three things up are a, a question of wisdom, surrendering to God and trusting him to guide you. So when those three things line up, then go for it. Proverbs 16.9 says this, A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. A man's heart deviseth his way. If you devise your way with an intent to obey God and you, in obedience, and you devise your way with an, an intent to be wise, what can I do, what am I good at, and what can you do according to other people than just you and your mom? All right. What, what can you do, what can you do, and there's a general consensus that you can do it, that you're good at it. What do you have an opportunity to do, and what do you want to do? And as you go, remember this. Proverbs 22:29. Seest thou a man diligent in his business? He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before mean men. That's the KJV. Mean men there means contemptible men. He will not stand before insignificant men. Do you, do you see a man who's good at what he does? Do you see a man who is excellent in his pursuit? Do you see a man diligent in his business? He shall stand before kings. Cream, the Bible teaches that cream rises. The Bible teaches that cream rises. This is not carnal ambition. This is not carnal ambition. Because you remember, you're doing all this because you want to glorify God. You want to advance his kingdom. This is what enables us to see death and resurrection in our daily callings. This is what enables us to see death and resurrection in our daily callings. And so, as you're thinking about this congregation, and as you receive the blessing of God, you want to receive everything you get from God, you want to receive from God, so that you can give it, right? So we, uh, when we tithe, when we give money, when we donate money, we give in order to get, in order to give again. We give to get, to give again. What we want to do, God tells us that we reap according to what we sow. God tells us that if we give, if we're, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, Paul says in Corinthians. He who sows generously will reap generously. But the whole idea is not, you don't give money to the kingdom of God so that you'll get a return. And then when you get, when it's like trying to gauge the market, you know, uh, you, when you get this return, then you've got your pile and then quick sit on it. Uh, no, you give in order to receive, in order to be equipped by God to give some more. You want to plant seed in the ground so you have a harvest, so you can take some of that seed and plant it in the ground and, and get a bigger harvest so that you have more to give. 
You want, you want to be generous. God is generous with us all the time. We want to imitate him. We want to be generous with the quantity of what we give others. And we want to be generous with the quality of what we give others. And so, when you receive the benediction at the end of the service, you should be thinking, you, you should not be thinking, oh good, I got my benediction. Gimme, gimme, gimme. You don't grab the benediction and stick it in your pockets and go hoard it. You can't hoard a benediction. You can share a benediction, but you can't hoard it. You, you don't get to, a, it's like manna. It, it, it'll rot overnight. If you just take the benediction that's given to you at the end of the worship service and hoard it, it's going to go bad. What you want to do is take that benediction and be asking God, how can I receive this benediction that I've received? I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. It's all the grace of God, but the benediction has been pronounced upon me. It's been placed upon my head. It's been placed upon my family. It's been placed upon my marriage. It's been placed upon my business. It's been placed upon my vocation. How can I have that benediction spread? How can I have it be a blessing? And you might say, look, I'm in, I'm a, I'm in my fifth year of engineering. That's a blessing to nobody. Right? No, it is. Right? It is. This is what the, the scriptures teach. It's a blessing. And one of, the, one of the ways to find out, find out how it can be a blessing in ways that we wouldn't anticipate is to actually be thinking in terms of this. Pray, pray. God, I've received this benediction. I've received the benediction at the end of the service. I would like to turn and transfer that benediction in and through what I'm doing in my calling. I'm a housewife. How can that spread the benediction? I'm an engineer. How can that spread the benediction? I'm a software designer. How can that spread the benediction? I'm a computer repairman. How can that spread the benediction? If we believe the scriptures... And if we are engaged in recovering this wonderful uh, doctrine, this wonderful uh, truth about vocation, it is going to be amazing what starts to happen. It's going to be amazing because people are hungry for blessing. They're going without it. Right? You, want, you want to be that, that point of contact. You want to be that blessing to them. And you want to be that blessing to them in and through what you were called to do. So one final caution. You don't want, if you're, you know, if you're a dry cleaner, you don't want to be that benediction to the customer by giving them soiled clothing in return plus a, a track. Right? Here's how Jesus forgave my sins. Here's how he can forgive uh, uh, your sins. And here's the lousy job I did. <laughs> That's not how you do it. Do you see a man who excels in his business? The way you, you, the way you do this is you, um, you ask God to bless your vocation. Whatever it is you're engaged in, you want to be someone who excels in business and have that be the means of blessing others with a spirit and a demeanor that makes them wonder what is going on. What just, hap what just happened? Why are the people in this office so cheerful every time I come here? Why, you know, why, why are these people so happy? And, and they're, 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 they appear to be driven, but without being driven in negative ways, in terrible ways. They appear to be uh, consumed with joy, and excellence comes out. Right? You know how people can be consumed with excellence, and all that comes out is no joy. Right? That's what we call the perfectionist raging around the office, or the perfectionist demanding everybody do it his way. No, you want to be consumed with joy. And excellence comes out. And if it's the right kind of joy, if it's the biblical doctrine, that is what's going to come out. Joy coupled with competence. A message on this subject would be grossly deficient if we did not quote Luther at some point. Luther was, uh, uh, Luther had this topic nailed. Luther understood this doctrine. It was a wonderful thing. His wonderful grasp of vocation, the most heavenly and earthy of truths, was remarkable. Luther said this, God himself milks the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. God himself milks the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. And amen. Our Father in God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for this truth. We thank you for how you've given to us in so many ways through so many other people. 
Father, we pray that we would be joyfully able to see how we are those other people to many others as we serve them. Father, I pray that we would become self-consciously your hands as we give to others. And I pray that you teach us how to do it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. At this table, God delights to feed us. But God does not just feed us. He prepares us to be fed. He undertakes the feeding, and he undertakes the preparation for feeding. Of course, the preparations began before the foundation of the world, when God the Father elected a people for himself. And the preparations continued when the Lord Jesus gave himself on the cross 2,000 years ago. But what role in preparation does the Holy Spirit have? He was the one who converted you. And he is the one working in your heart over the course of every week, preparing you for this meal. Psalm 10, verse 17, says this, Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. Thou wilt cause thine ear to hear. Not only does God respond to us here, but he also prepares our hearts for us so that we might respond, he might respond to us as we offer up our sacrifice of praise. This means that you did not just wander in. If you are baptized, you're invited to come. If you are not baptized, then you're invited to be baptized. And the water brings with it an invitation to this table. In short, one way or another, absolutely everyone here is invited. God prepared the meal, and in your heart, God prepared the one who would come and eat. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your people. We thank you for the bread and for the wine and what it signifies. Father, we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. Here, here's your charge. The benediction you're about to receive, as I alluded to in the sermon, the benediction is a loaf of bread. And just like this loaf of bread is broken and distributed, so also the benediction is a loaf of bread that's being handed to you, and you are to go out and share it with others through the work that God has called you to do. So receive the blessing of your God. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon and remain with you always. And amen.